Welcome to another episode of the Criminal Law Department Presents Podcast, a production of the Criminal Law Department at the Judge Advocate General's Legal Center and School in Charlottesville, Virginia. Every two weeks, we release a new episode. Today, we're going to have a conversation about a recent opinion from the Court of Appeals for the Armed Forces. Please note that these episodes may contain facts and circumstances surrounding criminal trials. Listener discretion is advised. Hi, welcome back to Cap Chats. Uh, today we're going to talk about United States versus Anderson, which in the world of military justice, I think constitutes kind of a blockbuster case. I'm Major Rian Wentz, and I'm joined today by... Major Dustin Morgan. Let's get the facts out of the way, because they're not necessarily that important. And then we'll get down to kind of the, the meat of this pretty big decision. So Master Sergeant Anderson was charged and convicted of two specifications of attempted sexual abuse of a child. At trial, the defense filed a motion requesting that the court, one, require a unanimous verdict for any finding of guilt, or instruct the members that the president of the panel must announce whether any finding of guilty was the result of a unanimous vote. At the trial level, the military judge denied the motion, Like I said, the appellant was convicted and he was sentenced to 12 months of confinement for each offense to run concurrently. He was reduced to E1 and he was sentenced to a dishonorable discharge. The issue that CAF granted had nothing to do with the facts or the sentence, but whether or not appellant was deprived of his right to a unanimous verdict as guaranteed by the Sixth Amendment, the Fifth Amendment's due process clause, and the Fifth Amendment's right to equal protection. So Major Morgan, how did we get here. And I mean that in a big, broad military justice sense. Yeah. And I think that it's a big, broad answer. And it's a path that took over three years to get to this final conclusion. So the genesis of this can really be traced back to the Supreme Court's decision in 2020 of Ramos versus Louisiana. So there, the Supreme Court said for the first time that baked in the Sixth Amendment right to a trial by jury is the right to have a unanimous verdict rendered against you and any finding of guilty. That left an open question in our system, right? Article 52 requires a three-quarters vote to convict, so six of the eight members as it currently is constituted um, in a general court-martial. And this motion that Master Sergeant Anderson filed was being filed almost uniformly across all services in the military. It was common in a case to file this motion get it denied, and then appeal it. Um, and there were a lot of these issues working their way through the service courts, and we were waiting for CAF to grant, and Anderson presented that issue. So let's dig into the arguments. Uh, like I said, in the granted issue, there was a an assignment of error regarding the Sixth Amendment and then two aspects of the Fifth Amendment. So the Sixth Amendment was the first issue that the CAF sort of dealt with and really disregarded. And they basically held that SCOTUS has repeatedly held that the Sixth Amendment right to a jury trial does not apply in court martials. And Major Morgan, what has been the rationale for this basically century and a half of jurisprudence that says that service members aren't entitled to this pretty fundamental right? Right. It it really goes back to the basic fundamental principle that the Supreme Court said time and time again that, that we're just different. I think that's the simplest way you can condense it down is that the military is just different because of the unique mission that we have. There's different rights that attach to us. There's different responsibilities that we have as servicemen and women. Um, and because of that, the Sixth Amendment has been found to not be applicable um, during the court-martial process. 
Messer and Anderson's counsel in this particular argument claim that all of this jurisprudence, so sort of time and time again, that the Supreme Court has held that the right to a jury trial doesn't apply in court martials could be dismissed as dicta. So for our listeners, Major Morgan, what is dicta? So dicta is is reasoning in a case that's not essential to the fundamental holding. So it's just, it's it's when the court... I guess a colloquial way to put it is waxes poetically in what they feel the state of the law is. Something that's not really germane to the central issue, but they're, they're talking about what the law means in that specific area, and they expand broadly beyond the initial question asked. I think that that may have been a stretch to call it dicta in these cases, and then Calf really calls that argument out in their opinion. They're like, well, these are kind of essential holdings, not so much dicta, and they and they really dismiss that argument and say, no, our courts, our court in particular, and the Supreme Court as well, has said the right to a jury does not attach in court-martial proceedings. Yeah, it seemed like Calf really had no interest in this particular argument. I think you're right that they, they kind of dismissed it, and they held that the Supreme Court has been very explicit and very consistent in their findings that the Sixth Amendment right to a jury trial doesn't apply to service members. And when, when Ramos first came out, it, w- it was always a Sixth Amendment issue in Ramos. And so people were curious whether or not that would change the, the un- basic underlying calculus of that. But it really goes down to whether or not that right to a jury even attaches. And time and time again, you know, the Supreme Court and CAF has said it, it doesn't. I mean, pretty recently, too. If you look at some of the death penalty jurisprudence, that question is asked every time. So Akbar, Hennis, um, Hassan asked the same question when it was briefed in front of CAF. They said time and time again. No, and it, it wasn't dicta. It's a, you know, it's a holding of the court. Yeah. So the Sixth Amendment argument that Master Sergeant Anderson makes has two elements, and the first one is the dicta argument, and the second one is that the right to we do have service members do have a right to an impartial panel, and CAF has been very consistent in their holdings that we have this right to an impartial panel. And so Master Sergeant Anderson argues that the right to an impartial panel equates to the right to a unanimous jury finding. So what's the court do with this argument? Yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of a nuanced argument, because if you look at Ramos, every time they talk about impartial jury, it is immediately followed by the unanimity requirement. So they, they make the sense that, you know, impartial not just jury applies to that unanimity requirement. So what the fundamental question was whether impartiality requires a unanimous verdict as well. So CAF really dismisses that argument and says that is making it too reductionist. That every time Ramos mentions impartial jury, they do so in quotations, quoting the Sixth Amendment directly. So it's not so much that impartiality equals unanimity, it's that impartial jury taken together. And like you said at the beginning, I mean, the, the, the precedent that says we're entitled to an impartial panel doesn't have that jury word in it. It's, it's interesting that they use that word in particular. So they dismiss it and they say, nope, that you don't have a Sixth Amendment right to unanimity under the impartiality standard as well. So I think that about covers the Sixth Amendment argument. Is there anything that you want to add on that? Yeah, so I think that last part's the, the most interesting portion of it because that's the first time that any court in the federal system has really rendered a, any kind of, spilled any ink about what impartiality means and whether or not that was part and parcel of the Ramos decision. It'll be interesting to see what happens with that language going forward. Because if you look at that portion of the opinion, there's no citations to another source. There's no citations to basic principal documents. There's no case law there. It's really CAF saying for the first time what they view Ramos's words to mean. And there's a lot of questions about what happens to this case next, and maybe we'll talk about that later. But just keep in mind as we go through that if there were to be a next step for this, and if this case were to be reviewed by the Supreme Court, 
this may be where it's most ripe for that because it's interpreting a new opinion that really hasn't had a lot of time to develop jurisprudence on. Absolutely. So let's move on to the uh, to Master and Anderson's Fifth Amendment arguments. And, and what's interesting to note here is so the Fifth Amendment specifically mentions cases arising out of the land and naval forces, but the Sixth Amendment doesn't have that exclusion. And so the lack of availability of a jury trial to service members isn't explicit in the Sixth Amendment. However, service members are specifically excluded out of certain requirements of the Fifth Amendment. Under the Fifth Amendment, Master Sergeant Anderson argues that he is entitled to a unanimous verdict by the Due Process Clause of the Fifth Amendment. Now, the standard for a Due Process Clause challenge is that the appellate must demonstrate that the factors militating in favor of a different procedure are so extraordinarily weighty as to overcome the balance struck by Congress. How does the court answer this? Before you answer, I'm going to take a pause. Did I say militating correctly? Yes. Thank you. Yeah. All right. So, Dustin, how does the court answer this particular argument? Yeah, so I think it has to be analyzed under the, the, the overarching principle that the court says right from the beginning that Congress is acting pursuant to its power to make rules for the government and regulation of the land and naval forces. The judicial deference to those decisions, that's apogee. So what that means is Congress has a lot of authority to regulate the Army, the Navy, the Marine Corps, the Air Force, the Space Force, everything that falls under the, the umbrella of DOD. So anytime the courts are looking to strike something down that Congress has said is necessary, they're, they're going to be hesitant to do that. So any concern in this due process realm is going to have to be extraordinarily heavy for the challenger to, to come out on top. So with that method in mind, the court says that the factors weighing in favor of unanimous verdict, so to overrule what Congress has said in Article 52, are, are not so weighty here. And they, they point to two things, really. So the first is the historical evidence. They went back and they analyzed the, the court-martial procedure over the past 200 years since, since the Army and Navy has existed. And they look at it, what the historical practice was, and there's never been the requirement for unanimous verdict in historical court-martial practice. So that weighs against the requirement of unanimous verdict. The second, they talk about some unique safeguards in the military justice system and how that may allay any concern the unanimous verdict would be required. So, for example, they cite Article 51 of the Uniform Code of Military Justice, which requires voting by secret ballots. They talk about how that protects junior members in the deliberation room and how the influence of rank is not supposed to come into the voting procedure. They also talk about factual sufficiency review on appeal under Article 66. So for those of you that are unfamiliar with that, historically our appellate courts have had a pretty unique and broad power. They take a de novo or a new look at every conviction of a qualifying offense. When I say qualifying, I mean one that is entitled to review. And they look at whether or not the accused should have been found guilty, and it's, it's really a fresh look at it. Interestingly, they drop a footnote in this part of the opinion because Article 66 was recently amended to make that standard a little bit higher, um, and they say it doesn't change their analysis. I, I did want to talk about that a little bit and see what you think, Rianne, on whether or not the standard has changed and whether or not that should weigh into this consideration and whether that procedural safeguard is still there. Yeah, I mean, I think that the standard has definitely changed. I think it's much harder to flip something on factual sufficiency now. And so if that is the case, I have trouble marrying the idea that factual sufficiency is continues to be that procedural safeguard that CAF says it is. At the very least, I don't understand how CAF 
says that it doesn't change their analysis. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah. So only one court has weighed in on whether or not Article 66 has changed tremendously or not. And it's the Navy Marine Corps case in the case United States versus Harvey. And they view it to have changed fundamentally. It goes from that fresh look that I mentioned historically that's happened to more of a presumption that the accused is guilty and they have to overcome that presumption now. So much closer to what the federal system does, like on a habeas review, uh, a habeas corpus review, if you're challenging, like collaterally attacking your conviction. I mean, that assumption that they're guilty is now there. And overcoming that, it chips away at the procedural safeguard. Article 66 is still pretty unique. So there's an argument that it's still there. But to talk about it in a footnote was was surprising to me as well. Mm -hmm. And I mean, uh, the the footnote part of it doesn't bother me. The formatting doesn't bother me. But the fact that it was almost entirely dismissed without analysis. Yeah, it it was a short footnote. I guess that's what I really mean. Like it wasn't it wasn't lengthy by any means. I, I, I think that it'd be interesting to see after viewing how Article 66 has changed in the field and how it's been implemented, what they would say now. I think saying it before any of those changes were analyzed is one thing, but it'd be, it'd be curious to see what the, what the CAF thinks about it now that it's been in changed and implemented. The other thing that I thought about, and CAF doesn't really analyze this, so it's not really fair to say this one or the other, but in thinking about the procedural safeguards or the lack thereof, I kept thinking about Article 25, that that is very unique to the military, and I think cuts against the idea that there's a lot of procedural safeguards that protect the sanctity of the jury verdict. What are your thoughts? Article 25 cuts both ways, in my opinion. So I, I, the fact that it's not like a truly um, like random panel selection that happens, sure. I mean, that does cut against there being some additional safeguards there, like within the selection of the panel. I do think that having criteria that's based on age, experience, judicial temperament does guarantee an accused a more educated panel across the board than you'd see in a jury in the civilian system. Um, I know I've had a lot of theoretical conversations with people in, like in this department and outside in the field about what that means in practice, but I really think that that does provide some safety to the accused. I, I think that panels across the military do really consider what they're doing when they're convicting or acquitting an accused. Oh, absolutely. And I mean, military panels are, as you said, some of the most educated, some of the most experienced. Um, And I I absolutely believe they take their job very, very seriously. But the idea that the person who has sent this to a court-martial has also picked the jury is tough to square as something that protects the integrity of the jury. Does that make sense? No, that's that's right. That's the not being... Um, randomized is, is the, the counter argument for that, obviously. It'll be interesting to see as proposals have been made to Article 25, whether that changes or not. And like with the advent of the Office of the Special Trial Council and the, the convening authority only playing a role in picking the panel and not referring the cases, if that changes the calculus a little bit. But again, this is all like years into the future before we see what the effects of that will be. As happens often with our conversations, Major Morgan, we have gotten off track. <laughs> so uh, some of the other due process clause arguments that Master Sergeant Anderson makes is uh, there's two that CAF kind of quickly uh, does away with. And the first one is by incorporating the Sixth Amendment to the states in Ramos, the Supreme Court implicitly recognized that due process of law guarantees the right to a unanimous verdict. And CAF basically says, no, Ramos just incorporates the Sixth Amendment jury right to the states and doesn't say that it creates a due process right. And then the second one is that a unanimous verdict is part and parcel of the Fifth Amendment right to have one's guilt proved beyond a reasonable doubt. And essentially, CAF says that Mass Sergeant 
Anderson sort of conflates the beyond a reasonable doubt standard in an individual juror's mind to the entire jury finding it beyond a reasonable doubt. Uh, Did you have any thoughts on those arguments that get brushed aside, for lack of a better descriptor? Yeah, the first one was unsurprising to me because I I think that it is, I mean, Ramos was a Sixth Amendment decision, and I think that that that's fair to say it that way, and, I, and the calf dealing with it in that way was was very unsurprising. The second one is is a little more interesting, I think, like because whether unanimity is individual or a group decision, I mean, Ramos doesn't say anything about that. Uh, it, it's it's really again one of those times where calf is one of the first courts in in, in the country to interpret what Ramos really means, because this is a closed question in the states and the federal system. I mean, there's no more debate about it. We are the only jurisdiction in, in the United States that gets to have this discussion now. So here's what they say specifically: Appellant conflates unanimous verdicts and the beyond a reasonable doubt standards, misconceiving juries as reaching their verdicts as an entity rather than as a group of individuals. To the contrary, the reasonable doubt standard refers to a reasonable doubt in the mind of the individual juror. So it's more of a standard than a protection under that analysis. I'm still trying to understand that balance and understand what that means in total. Um, But to think of it as not a protection, I don't know if that squares with other case law in the federal and in the state jurisprudence. So I, that that will be interesting to see how that fleshes out in the future, too. We'll talk about the potential petition for cert here in a little bit, but do you think that factors into the discussion? For sure. Okay. All right. So the second Fifth Amendment argument um, is under the Fifth Amendment's Equal Protection Clause, and Master Sergeant Anderson argued that his non-unanimous panel verdict violated his Fifth Amendment right to equal protection because he has denied a fundamental right, the Sixth Amendment right to a unanimous jury verdict, that is guaranteed to civilians. And the threshold question when military courts are considering an equal protection claim, whether the groups treated differently by the law are similarly situated. So Major Morgan, let's talk about similarly situated. Okay, we're gonna have to go back to con law for this. It's been been a while, but we'll we'll get through it. Okay, great. (laughs) Um, So it's really looking at the two different groups of individuals and comparing their rights and comparing like just the basic fundamental assumptions about them. Like this is one of those areas where there's been a lot of jurisprudence about military members again. Um, it's, it's almost like the right to a jury trial. I mean, time and time and time again, um, the CAF, the, its predecessor, the Court of Military Appeals and the Supreme Court has said, no, we're not similarly situated. It goes back to the discussion we had at the beginning of the episode, how the unique nature of the military and the unique nature of our mission just, just makes us different, which is, is understandable. And so they... The CAF here says the courts previously declined to find that service member and civilian defendants are similarly situated. In the United States versus Akbar, which is one of the last capital um, trials that the armies tried, this court rejected the argument that the failure to apply civilian death penalty protocols in the military justice system violates equal protection. So analogizing that um, and, and taking the principle there that we're not similarly situated, they just say, nope, we're not changing our case law. It's been around forever, and we're continuing to apply that principle. So Mass Sergeant Anderson's counsel here makes an interesting argument that this analysis has changed and maybe should change based on what they call the civilianization of the court-martial system. So the UCMJ has evolved from a code that was meant to, in a a system that was meant to uh, punish military-specific crimes and military-specific offenses to one that punishes all common law crimes. I mean, anything that you can think of that's committed in the civilian world, you know, we try as well, rape, murder, sexual assault, like you name it, we, we prosecute it. And 
they cite their uh, recent decision, one of the last cracks that the Supreme Court's taken at the court martial system, Ortiz versus the United States, which is a 2018 case. And they use that case because in there, the Supreme Court talks about how the court martial system has changed and how it's evolved to go from this simple tool for good order and discipline to a more complex, really judicial entity um, that mirrors in a lot of ways the civilian trial system. So it's it's interesting to see whether or not this what the court refers to as closing of the gap between the two systems has made us more similarly situated. But they say that nothing in that gap closing has caused them to question their decision in Akbar, which was just, you know, five or six years previous to this decision. That is really interesting, especially because in Ortiz, the Supreme Court goes to great lengths and in great detail describes how far the military justice system has come in terms of looking like the civilian system. There is a rule that basically incorporates any changes to the federal rules of evidence. Those changes will be incorporated into the military rules of evidence. And it's it's automatic. And so it's, it is interesting. And, and one of the things that the government asserts here that CAF talks about throughout its opinion is sort of this like broad military necessity. The government asserts that non-unanimous verdicts in the military are necessary to promote efficiency. And I guess my lingering question is, what does that mean, right? Like, what does that look like in the modern military justice system where we rarely try cases downrange, where we have we have worked to become more civilianized? Like, what does military necessity mean? Yeah, so the, the fundamental objective of, like, the court martial system as it was you know, developed was to be, um, it should be able to be utilized in a deployed environment. And I think a lot of that necessity argument goes to that. They, like the, the appellant here, uh, Master Sergeant Anderson, does argue that, hey, that, that necessity is kind of gone by the wayside. Yes, we have not tried, tried cases in a deployed environment for a while, but I think the ability to do so still needs to remain would be the government's counterpoint. And I think that that's where the calf is is hanging its hat like there could be a time very well in the near future where we're having to try cases in a deployed environment far away from you know everything that we have available to us in, in a garrison environment and we have to go back be able to go back to this and have to be able to utilize the system in a way it was developed i think that's where the military necessity argument comes from yeah um anything else you have on the equal protection argument no, I think that that is probably the most complicated of these three, but hopefully we've done it justice. <laughs> it did take me several times to read it. Okay, so now I want to talk about next steps. So let's talk about where this case can go. Sure. So while the CAF is the highest court in the military system, it's obviously not the highest court in the country. We've referenced a couple of cases where military courts martial have been taken by the Supreme Court and they've rendered opinions of it. Um, as recently as 2020, the court heard a case in United States versus Briggs, which talked about the statute of limitations, cases involving child sexual abuse. So there is the appetite to take cases from the court martial system. That would be the next step for a case like this. If the if Master Sergeant Anderson's counsel thought it was necessary, they could ask for the Supreme Court to grant cert. And there's a statutory authority for the Supreme Court to hear our cases as they verified in Ortiz in 2018. And they would hear it and basically see whether or not their decision in Ramos or whether these other principles in the Fifth Amendment like would necessitate unanimous verdicts in the court-martial system. There is, though, from Ortiz, we have this lingering question of jurisdiction, and it's kind of bubbles up a little, it bubbles up a lot in Ortiz, um, less so in Briggs. Um, in Briggs, there's basically Justice Gorsuch has like a three-line dissent where he's like, I don't think we should take these cases. But 
essentially the question that was presented in Ortiz stems from the fact that courts martial, the CCAs and CAF, are all Article I courts. They are not born out of Article Three, but created by the executive. In Ortiz, the Supreme Court found that they did have jurisdiction. And as part of that analysis, as you talked about, Major Morgan, emphasized the similarities between the procedure in federal courts and in military courts. It is an interesting contrast between the language in the Supreme Court and the language in Anderson that emphasizes the difference between military and civilian justice and the language in Ortiz that sort of emphasizes the similarities. Um, But at the end of the day, looking specifically at the jurisdiction question, there are justices on the Supreme Court who do not think that the court has jurisdiction to hear military cases. And we see that in Ortiz from Justices Alito and Justice Gorsuch. Interestingly, Justice Alito writes the opinion United States versus Briggs, and he apparently has no issue with the jurisdiction at that point. So I think it's kind of an open question if we're going to continue to see the question of whether or not the Supreme Court can hear these Article I court cases. They have for... Bankruptcy, for instance. Yeah. They hear bankruptcy cases every once in a while. I think they just granted certification at certiorari on one yesterday. So, I mean, they... There's precedent for it. Certainly, yeah. And also, I mean, even if you were to just focus in on the military, there's decades and decades and decades of precedent where the Supreme Court is taking military justice cases. So I don't know that that would be, I mean, there are many roadblocks to a case being granted cert at the Supreme Court. And maybe the jurisdiction is a small part of the conversation, but I don't know that that would necessarily inhibit. But I don't know. No, I think the bigger question is, is there something that's going to garner the attention of four of the justices? Do you think that there is? Maybe. Um, We we, we talked about two issues where the CAF is for the first time interpreting a major fundamental decision that they released just three years ago. And every once in a while, the Supreme Court comes in and clears up any confusion that may have been present from a major case. And, and Ramos is certainly a major case. When we talked about in the Sixth Amendment portion of the, of the episode where the impartiality requirement does not require unanimity in the eyes of CAF, it'd be interesting to see what this, what SCOTUS has to say about that. Like, did they mean what they said um, in Ramos, or was it truly a quotation, as the CAF is saying, just taking language from the Sixth Amendment? The second is the individual versus group unanimity discussion in the Fifth Amendment context, because is it a right or is it a procedure? And if it's a right, maybe that analysis changes. So there, there, there are two issues that really there's some meat on the bone for an interesting question for the Supreme Court to take up. Whether or not they think that the segment of the population that's the military is big enough to take up their limited resources and the limited amount of cases they grant cert on a year, I don't know. But there's definitely some interesting questions here. And this case... I- I don't think this case changes anybody's practice. This doesn't change our practice unless and until we get a different answer from the Supreme Court. But it has certainly been a lingering question since Ramos was decided. And so now we have the answer to that question, at least maybe temporarily. Maybe. Maybe. Oh, I also wanted to mention that I made it through this entire episode without saying unanimity unanimity, uh, because that word terrifies me. Um, But congratulations, you said it perfectly every single time. (laughs) But thank you so much for your insight, Major Morgan. Thank you all for listening. Please like and subscribe to uh, Criminal Law Presents. And until next time... Thanks for joining us today for another episode of the Criminal Law Department Presents podcast. If anything you heard sparked a thought, we'd love to connect with you. Your comments help us create better future content for the field or the fleet. 
reach out to us on Facebook or Instagram. The information can be found in the show notes for today's episode. The views expressed in today's podcast are those of the presenters and not necessarily the Judge Advocate General's or the Department of the Army or the Department of Defense. Thanks, counsel, for both sides. And the court will stand in recess until further order of the court.